BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Roundtable, a chance for us to look back on the news of the week with three of Washington's finest. It's been a week of protest and virus as we meet on Thursday, June 4, about 8.30 in the morning. In hundreds of cities across the land, there have been 10 nights of protests now, too many of which turned into riots. Several large cities, including here in Washington, D.C., are still under curfew. By their very nature, of course, protests are large numbers of people crowded together, just the kind of gathering we've been warned against as we emerge from the coronavirus pandemic, as a result of which health officials fear another spike in COVID-19 cases. Here in the U.S., the count is now 1.9 million cases and 109,000 deaths. The protests were also enough to kick the 2020 presidential campaign back into gear, with Donald Trump emerging from the White House to wave a Bible in Lafayette Square, and Joe Biden emerging from his basement in Wilmington, Delaware, to give speeches in Wilmington and Philadelphia. Busy week here to make some sense of it all. From Yahoo News, Hunter Walker. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are you? All right. And from uh, Black News USA, Lauren Burke. Hello, Lauren. How are you doing, Bill? How are you? Good to have you back. And uh, back with us from The Hill, Niall Stanage. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. How are you? Uh, of course, we are doing this online, virtually, uh, everyone from their home. Uh, Hunter, let me start with you. You have been down to Lafayette Square, which has been sort of the epicenter of the protests here in Washington, D.C., every day uh, since the murder of George Floyd. Uh, describe the scene for us. What have you seen down there? Well, I, I should um, clarify that a bit. Uh, George Floyd was killed on uh, May 25th. The protests really took on a large scale here in Washington on May 29th. Uh-huh, so I've, okay. I've been down there for, I guess today is the one week anniversary, <laughs> if you will, of yeah. the larger protests in Washington. And that first day, uh, what was so stunning was the protesters managed to breach, I would say, about 90 feet of the barricades uh, between Lafayette Park and the White House, which, you know, as a White House correspondent, someone who knows that building is extremely secure, is supposed to be extremely secure, seeing um, it breached even a small way was pretty incredible. Uh, you know, these barricades are, are ahead of the really large main fence outside the complex. But this led to these just extraordinary scenes where you saw protesters quite literally street fighting in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue behind the barricades with Secret Service who were using fists and shields to try to hold the line. Um, Eventually, they were cleared out at 322 Saturday morning with pepper spray. And since then, it's just been really days of 
skirmishes in Lafayette Square, uh, that park across from the White House. Uh, there's been looting and vandalism through downtown D.C. as protesters were kept out of the park and migrated. It, it has even come up to the more residential areas of D.C. with uh, a mall on the border of Maryland looted, uh, this entire standoff on Swan Street in the heart of uh, you know well-heeled residential Northwest. And now I think after all of this, by and large, the protests are taking on a much more peaceful activist turn. Uh, I, I was there yesterday and saw a group unveil a list of demands, long marching and singing. I, I was not, not up late enough this time to see if there was tear gas in the evening, which has become a nightly ritual. But uh, the situation certainly doesn't show much signs of slowing down. Uh, Lauren, yesterday the governor of Virginia announced that he was ordering that the statue of Robert E. Lee, iconic statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, be taken down. Uh, is that a sign that the protests are maybe hitting their mark or having an impact? impact? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, there are a group of activists in uh, Richmond, Virginia specifically, though, who are asking for more substantive things like uh, civilian review boards for police. And of course, the Robert E. Lee statue coming down is a big deal. And he, uh, you know, Governor Northam is expected to announce that at 11 a.m. today. Uh, so, I mean, that that's, that's actually huge. And I suspect that because of what we saw in Charlottesville a few years ago, uh, and the fact that anytime there's any discussion about those statues coming down, it, actually, Richmond has a monument Boulevard, Monument Avenue. So it's a, actually Avenue of Confederate mon monuments. There's bound to be demonstrations around that. But to your question, it is a sign that something is changing. Uh, I suspect, though, that behind that, there will be some hard policy applied to it as well. So Niall, uh, Hunter mentioned uh, Lafayette Square, because the big event at Lafayette Square this week was the president uh, walking out of the White House across Lafayette Square to St. John's. Um, but he now says that the idea that he did this because he didn't like stories that he had been forced to hide in his bunker on Friday night are just bunk, that he didn't have to hide in the bunker. He never he went to the bunker just to inspect it. The Washington Post this morning says flat out that is a flat out lie on the part of Donald Trump. What are your sources well, tell you? Well, it wouldn't be the first one if it was uh, a lie. I mean, <laughs> th there are a whole range and uh, there's a whole history of his um, misstatements, as uh, it's rather euphemistically known, on this and various matters. Um, the, the the fact of, of the matter, and someone was saying this to me um, yesterday, Donald Trump's concern across the board is often with the appearance or visual or symbol of something rather than the underlying substance. And I think we saw that even in the walk uh, to St. John's that you mentioned, where they decided, it seems to me, to have that walk, to have this visual, which was quickly turned into a campaign style video of the president walking across Lafayette Square. Um, and then he got there and it didn't seem like there was really much for him to do. He held up a Bible. Uh, he was asked questions which he answered uh, briefly, if not monosyllabically at times, and he walked back again. So that was, seems to me, all about getting that visual, that photo opportunity. And of course, it did uh, provoke the annoyance of uh, a number of people in uh, the church 
itself, um, including, you know, the, the most senior, I, I'm not exactly sure of the title, I believe she's the Bishop, the Bishop. of the Episcopal, uh, yeah. Episcopal Church uh, in, in Washington, who said she was outraged by that event. So it's, uh, I mean, that, that's just yet one more rather bizarre episode in the Trump presidency. But I think this one made particularly bizarre because of the gravity of the events that are going on around so, Hunter, whose bright idea was this for Trump to walk across there? And what did it achieve? What did it accomplish? So I was actually in Lafayette Park uh, as this happened. I, I've got unedited video that I posted up on YouTube because amazingly, after we all watched tear gas get sprayed on live television, uh, the White House and, and some of their allies are attempting to say that this did not happen. Uh, but basically... You know, the president was due to make a speech in the Rose Garden. And yeah. as a White House reporter, I get these pool reports uh, that are hitting my phone and are telling me about all of his movements. Uh, this was at circa, you know, 6.30 p.m. I, I believe the speech was technically due for 6.15, but he was running late. Uh, I was at this point coming into the park uh, because the curfew was 7 p.m. And I was there to sort of see how that curfew played out. It was the second day of curfew. The first day was Sunday night, uh, and that curfew was 11 p.m. And, and in that case, you know, people were really allowed to maintain and assemble up until the curfew. But this was not the case when the president had his appearances uh, at about, and this is according to Mayor Bowser, but it, it lines up with my memory, uh, 25 minutes before that 7 p.m. curfew, uh, pretty much as the president was speaking in the Rose Garden, uh, you saw this column of law enforcement, including U.S. Park Police on horseback, make this coordinated advance where they charged into the crowd and started firing all sorts of gas canisters until people were you know, dispersed from the front of Lafayette Park. I was with a group that got pushed down 17th Street sort of by towards the old executive office building, uh, and they continued firing tear gas until uh, that crowd was completely removed from, you know, anywhere in the vicinity of 17th in Pennsylvania. And um, as this is happening, I'm seeing on my phone that at 7.01 p.m., uh, pretty much as the gas is still wafting in the air, President Trump left from the north portico of the White House and moved towards St. John's Church. And it was unbelievable because it dawned on me in real time that this crowd had been moved away to create the kind of security perimeter needed when a president actually physically leaves from the front gates of the White House. It's a pretty rare occurrence. This was the first time this happened for President Trump. So, you know, it, it, it seemed all, you know, pretty clear to me. I mean, if you use Occam's razor, right, the president yeah. wanted to get out there, make this political appearance. This was at a church that had been vandalized in, in the widespread vandalism on Sunday night. He wanted to appear there. Everyone was pushed away. And it was almost to the minute in line with his movements. And, you know, I was watching him from the Rose Garden, and I, I, I was really stunned and puzzled because at the very end of his remarks, he said, and now I'm going to go visit a very sacred place or something like that. And I don't think nobody picked up on it. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that about? Where, where is he going? Right. Because like you, Hunter, I get the notices of the president's movements and not, no trip had been announced. And that's where he was going uh, across the street. But but Lauren and Niall mentioned this earlier. What was striking, too, is once all the military, the U.S. Army, the Park Police and everybody are, are, are employed to get everybody off of H Street using rubber bullets and tear gas and all of that, 
He shows up at the church. Ivanka pulls the Bible out of her bag. Uh, a $1,500 Max Mara bag. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, I, I love details like that. Yeah, yeah. And he stands there holding up the Bible. But Lauren, he had nothing to say. He didn't say anything, right? There was no message for the protesters, for the family of George Floyd, for the American people, anything. Yeah. The president had nothing to say. The president just in that moment, I think, wanted to just be seen. I believe that was the same day that Joe Biden was in church in Delaware. And uh, there is no, there was no role for him in that moment. This is something that cities and governors have to deal with primarily. And I think he just wanted to matter. And he's a very, uh, he, one thing that Donald Trump is very good at is setting up a visual. So he just wanted to be seen standing there holding a Bible. That was it. The fact that Pat Robertson and so many others have called him out for it, I think is completely unprecedented. But in the end, Donald Trump is about the visual. And if you took any glance at, at any of the front pages the next day, you notice that, in fact, that picture of him standing there holding a Bible was, in fact, very prominent. But really what we have here is a president who is just completely vacant when it comes to any sort of substantive review of what this moment is in either you know American history or the history of that White House in terms of you know, presidents going to bunkers and presidents tear gassing their own citizens and presidents ordering the military against their own citizens. Of course, that's completely lost on Donald Trump because he doesn't know anything about that. So I think what we saw in essence was the typical insular nature of this personality wanting to be seen standing in front of a boarded up church, which of course inherently makes no sense whatsoever. And, um, that's what you got, right? And he kind of won on the visual a little bit. Where he didn't win was when everybody, not not only from the church, but evangelicals across the country, had an inherent problem with him using religion and God as a prop. Right. Um, so, Niall, uh, and each of you would like to comment on this. Yesterday, uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison of Minnesota uh, upped the charges from third-degree murder to second-degree murder on the one police officer who knelt uh, the almost eight min nine minutes on the neck of George Floyd, and charged the other three officers uh, who were standing by. Some of them were kneeling on him as well, with aiding and abetting in the murder of George Floyd. Does this change uh, the nature of the protest and the discussion moving moving forward, Nile? I'm not sure that it changes the nature of it. I think that protesters and people in general who are concerned about racial injustice in this country will be uh, glad that the charge against uh, Mr. Chauvin was escalated and that the three other officers were charged. I think the protests, though of course sparked by the death of George Floyd, are about uh, a larger issue, uh, you know, primarily the issue of racial injustice as it uh, percolates through lots of areas of American life uh, and has sadly incorporated the killing of large numbers of black people, uh, sometimes at the hands of law enforcement, sometimes at the hands of other private citizens who have uh, not had charges pressed against them or have been uh, acquitted. So, I, you know, I, we, I mean, I guess we, we don't want to say anything that would seem prejudicial to a, a criminal case, but it, it didn't come as a great surprise to me, let's put it that way, that the charges against the 
central officer involved were escalated. And I think there had been a demand uh, in previous days for the other officers to be charged. Of course, all four men had been fired from the Minneapolis Police Department, but that seemed to many people, I think, a small uh, remedy or a, a very partial remedy given the gravity of what people saw. Just one very final point, Bill. The 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 fact that cell phone video can be shot so widely, I think, is changing this country uh, in it because there is no it had this been a situation where there had been no independent verification of what had happened, uh, I find it very difficult to believe that those four police officers would now be facing charges because, frankly, I can't imagine that they would have depicted what we now have all seen via that video. I think that's a very good point, Hunter, isn't it? I mean, without this video, uh, without the video of uh, Ahmed uh, uh, Ahmad uh, Arbery down in Georgia, right? Those two men would not have, three men would not have been arrested. These police officers would not have been charged. Yeah, I you know, agree with a lot of what Niall uh, had said there. I think yesterday uh, I spent a lot of time with a group called Concerned Citizens. Uh, and this is a newly formed group by a trio of young activists uh, between the ages of 19 and 24. Uh, and, you know, despite their youth, they're all um, veterans uh, of protest. One of the three leading organizers is Alaya Eastman, who was a survivor of the Parkland shootings in Florida. And one thing she said to me specifically was exactly what Niall had said, that, um, you know, part of the reason that they're doing this is because they know that um, there's so much that hasn't been filmed. Uh, and even even now, as, as there are typically cell phones in people's hands, there's probably so much that isn't filmed. And, you know, to, to the point uh, we were making earlier about um, whether this is you know, moving the goal, moving the goalposts or, or changing the discussion somewhat. Um, they came out with a list of ten demands that they unveiled yesterday at four p.m. Literally in the time that they released the demands and then were preparing their march, uh, the first demand on the list was charges for the four officers involved in the death of George Floyd, and that was basically announced. <laughs> you know, in the interim, that's how fast things are moving. But uh, Ty Hobson Powell, one of the other lead organizers, had said, you know, we, we know that this just happened, but, you know, now we really want to make sure that we see convictions and that this isn't something just to appease people. But this really is about becoming about much more than just, you know, certainly George Floyd. This group specifically uh, is taking great pain to invoke Breonna Taylor, a woman who was wow. killed in Kentucky in her home, in her home right. in March during a police investigation. They burst in there. They're also talking about um, decriminalization of marijuana. Um, again, like Lauren said, mandatory civilian review boards in every city. Um, and then also some local demands in D.C., including statehood. Well, this gets to the question, Lauren, which, you know, uh, <laughs> needless to say, George Floyd is hardly the first case like this, right? I mean, the litany of people just in recent years, starting with Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and Sandra Blake, I think her name was, or, and um, Freddie Gray, Eric Gardner. Uh, and we've seen protests and the protests die off and sort of life goes on. Um, is there, everybody wants this to be different, that this will really move us toward dealing with systemic racism in this country uh, and particularly in law enforcement and doing something meaningful about it. Um, 
Do you see that happening? Are you hopeful at all? Uh, not particularly. Um, I have a a sort of interesting perspective because I have several, uh, law enforcement officers in my family, including my father who passed away in 2007. But, um, I'm in Brooklyn, New York right now. I'm from New York, but I have a place of course in Washington and, uh, I'm dating a federal police officer. And, uh, I have to tell you that there's nothing particularly interesting or exciting to me about this, uh, moment, uh, as, as I sense it is for everybody else. Uh, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King used to talk about police brutality some 50 years ago. Uh, the difference that was just noted by everybody, Hunter and Nial, about uh, the fact that this is all filmed is really the only difference. There hasn't been anything that really has changed other than the fact that we had to endure, you know, watching George Floyd on video beg for his life, just like we had to do with Eric Garner and Philando Castile and and so many others. So I, I you know, policing is tied into uh, a lot of things uh, racially, culturally. Uh, in the South, it started as the force that rounded up slaves. And it's very hard for us to get at the political aspect of this, which is that political actors such as Bill de Blasio and so many others want to be the friends of police. They want to be the friends of those in power. In New York, the police act with absolute impunity. They want absolute no uh, oversight whatsoever. And if you go to Twitter right now, you will see that last night there were a bunch of peaceful protests in New York, uh, right near where I am, uh, Barclays Center. I'm about 20 uh, 20 minutes away. And um, they were just beating people with the cameras rolling. I mean, they just don't care. If you really want to see if policing is changing in America, you watch two cities, Chicago, and you watch New York. I suspect you will see absolutely no change in those cities. The police are an institution that is that is tied into politics and tied into uh, you know political power and control through their unions in a way that is extremely hard to get at. W- what we do know also is that it is possible for this change to happen because if you look at the template of our military, you see that when we put our military in much more uh, complex situations overseas and we tell them if you kill an Iraqi civilian, let's say, you will pay a price for that. You're going to end up in the brig. You know, and and so we see that our military has higher standards when it comes to treating people. But uh, because race plays a very complex factor uh, and a very bias structured factor factor when it comes to policing America, we see that there isn't really that type of systemic change or that demand for change. And so that's why we keep seeing these instances over and over. Uh, and on that bright note, uh, <laughs> uh, let's move on to another voice that's been heard. Um, we've talked about the military uh, as part of the put downing of, of, of the peaceful protests in Lafayette Square. Uh, suddenly, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary Esper, has spoken up and said, no, I don't think the military's role is to police American cities, putting him at odds with Donald Trump, how long before he gets the boot, Hunter? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's really hard to tell. I mean, we, we just saw this extraordinary situation yesterday where the former defense secretary, um, Jim Mattis, kind of, uh, you know, blasted the president, uh, you know, for the first time since, since serving in his administration. And I think it would be... Uh, uh, 
gentle understatement to say that President Trump has had a fairly turbulent relationship uh, with, with, with some of the top officials in his own administration. <laughs> We've seen by far record turnover, a lot of firing. Uh, you know, as I was just pointing out, Esper is not the first secretary of defense. So, you know, I, I've often been shocked, even in spite of that record turnover, how long some people managed to hang on um, after, you know, having some sort of spat with the president. I think the most famous instance is Jeff Sessions with, um, right. you know, recusing himself from the Mueller case. And as anyone who saw the many, many tweets about the president's rage on this, Sessions hung around for a long time after that. So and, and also, you know, with John Kelly, who was the chief of staff, you saw so many reports that he was about to be out. His relationship with the president was over and, and he hung on through so many of those. So, you know, it's I, it's almost like looking at a relationship between two high schoolers and trying to analyze <laughs> how long these two crazy kids will make it. And, and I just don't know. We have gone about uh, 25 minutes here with our panel and we haven't even yet talked about uh, the coronavirus <laughs> or the 2020 presidential campaign, just to show you uh, how the George, the death of George Floyd and the ensuing protests uh, have dominated the news this week. Uh, so let's take a quick break and get back to those two other topics here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, we're here today with Hunter Walker, uh, Lauren Burke, and Niall Stanage on today's roundtable. On today's roundtable, brought to you by LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, a real powerhouse among America's labor unions, some 500,000 strong. They're the people that build America from the ground up. They build solar plants, windmill farms, pipelines. They build our water and sewer systems. They build roads, bridges, and skyscrapers, all under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. We salute the members of the Laborers Union, thank them for their great work, and thank them for the support of the Bill Press. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Pod. And we're back with today's roundtable from Yahoo News Hunter Walker from Lauren Burke Black from Lauren Burke from Black News USA, sorry, and from the Hill Niall Stanage. So Niall, there's a political dimension to all of this, of course, um, being who we are, and the Lincoln Project, that group of. Uh, disaffected Republicans who would like nothing other than to deny Donald Trump a second term, uh, was quick to seize on the political uh, repercussions of Donald Trump's response to these protests this week. Here's their latest ad. 
When Donald Trump came out of hiding this week, he didn't do it to bring us together or heal the nation. He wasn't there to offer words of calm and comfort. Instead, he became what we always feared. He ordered our own soldiers to flood the streets, instructing them to turn against Americans, used churches and the Holy Bible as political props. To boost his polls, Washington transformed into a war zone for this coward. This is a time for choosing America or Trump. Well, Niall, um, that might play both ways. What do you think? Well, it's something that is intended, I think, to try to peel uh, disaffected Republicans away from Donald Trump. That's the whole purpose, really, of the Lincoln Project, which is driven by uh, figures who are or were Republicans. And certainly the use of words like coward, the uh, invocation of him using religion, seems intended to uh, further that effort. Um, I mean... How the politics of this play out is a difficult issue, in my opinion. There are some polls out that suggest that uh, Donald Trump's handling of this has been disapproved by uh, pluralities. Uh, On the other hand, I don't underestimate, frankly, the capacity for there to be a um, reaction in the opposite uh, direction. I mean, we have the kind of discussion that we're having here and you turn on Fox News and people are living in a different universe, you know, and and it's all about uh, riots and looting and blah, 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 blah. And that, I think, has the capacity to also uh, move voters um, in that way. So it's uh, difficult to work out. And uh, Hunter, I saw this week that the president has a 54% disapproval rating which, according to Real Clear Politics, is higher than any president, modern president, in his first term. Um, are they worried? So, you know, one one thing that is really important as we discuss twenty twenty is to contextualize all this, right? As as we've been talking here, you know, within the past week and change, really, the entire landscape of um, American news and politics has completely shifted. So it's a little bit hard. um, And I think that goes for people inside the campaigns as well, um, you know, to assess where we are right now. Just prior to this, just prior to this, um, I had done a story on, you know, how Donald Trump's campaign was handling going virtual in the pandemic, specifically because, you know, arena rallies are such a, a trademark part of his style. And you know, when you looked at the numbers then, and again, this is in, you know, a phrase we use a lot now, the before times, um, it was a close race between him and Joe Biden, in spite of that disapproval. Uh, you know, Biden was ahead, but obviously, you know, after 2016, we've seen a Democrat with a slight lead, and that could always play out differently in the Electoral College. One demographic, very interestingly, where I know Biden is a bit soft and the Trump campaign has their eye on it, is younger Black and Latino men. And obviously, they're very central to this discussion we're having now. One thing I've got my eye on is obviously Joe is heading into the Veep stakes. I don't think he'll make you know a big decision like that in this transitional moment. But we already saw Amy Klobuchar's stock 
uh, dropped tremendously because she was involved in earlier decisions, uh, you know, involving officers in Minnesota, right, where this situation with George Floyd happened. But two of the leading contenders, particularly as Joe Biden said he must select a woman, were Senator Kamala Harris and Congresswoman Val Demings, both of whom have law enforcement backgrounds. And I've been talking to some Democrats who are assuming that, you know, there are people right now picking through uh, Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor to see if she's made decisions not to prosecute police involved in shootings, and also Demings's record as chief of police in Orlando to see how she handled shootings over there, uh, with the assumption that both Biden's team is looking to see if there may be problems there, and Trump's team is looking to exploit that. So this is unquestionably changed the landscape. And I think that is a demographic you're going to keep hearing more about as sort of Trump attempts to discourage black and Latino men from going to the polls. Uh, women of color are a huge advantage for Joe Biden. And Joe attempts to really make sure they come out in force and are attracted to his campaign. Uh, Lauren, I've been told uh, by some in the political realm, uh, as recently as this week, that it doesn't really matter whether Joe Biden picks a woman of color as his running mate or not, because he's got such a long, long, strong following uh, in the African-American community. He's good on, on his own. Do you buy that? Um, I think he's got an OK following in the African-American community. I don't think it's particularly, uh, you know, uh, particularly strong, but of course he was, you know, Barack Obama's vice president. I, I think the numbers, uh, you know, I haven't seen any particular, well, obviously we did have his big win in South Carolina, but I, I think at the end of the day, what, what gets Biden into office is, you know, numbers like 44 million people filing for unemployment and over a hundred thousand people dead of COVID. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how, uh, Donald Trump can, can get away from those numbers. I don't know how anybody could forget that. Uh, this is the guy who, yes, he's duly elected. Yes, the Electoral College is what it is, but he got 2.8 million votes fewer than Hillary Clinton. So I just, I, I will be absolutely shocked. And I know that sounds, you know, like what everybody said in 2016, if he wins, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I, barring a brain aneurysm or something, a plane crash with Joe Biden, I can't imagine that Donald Trump will be a reelected president. I mean, there's just too much going on here. And when you see people, not just the Lincoln Project people, but, you know, George Will, you're seeing people who are conservatives who have had enough that have been saying they've had enough for two and three years now. So I just can't imagine. I think a lot of people uh, who don't even follow politics, who, of course, voted for this president just based on you know, America first and very general things. Uh, I, I think those people are scared as well. And if we look specifically at the states that Biden needs to win, the Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that whole thing, I, I just can't imagine him losing. How important do you think it is that he picks a woman of color as his running mate? I don't think that that really matters. I think the most important, I think the most important thing about this moment in 2020 is that Donald Trump is a scary figure that is going to propel people to vote in record numbers. And unless he fools around with mail by vote or tries to steal the election in some very direct way, I just don't understand how he can, can change those metrics. I really don't think it matters who Biden picks. Now we have to touch on the other reality out there because it has not gone away. Despite what some people may think, it may not be the front page anymore or the top of the evening news. But just to put it in perspective, yesterday, 
Uh, 20,000 new cases of coronavirus were reported in this country, 20,000, and 1,000 more people died of the virus yesterday. Um, Niall, we are not at the end of the tunnel yet, huh? No, certainly not. This is going to go on for a long time. I mean, this is going to go on in some shape or form for as long as we don't have a vaccine. The uh, figures that you have just cited are very striking. I was uh, down at the White House protests on Tuesday, and I was struck by how virtually universal the wearing of masks was. Uh, There were uh, people with the demonstrators out supplying hand sanitizer to protesters. So that shows that even in the middle of this period of grief and anger over uh, George Floyd and over the broader issues that are raised by his death, that is still central to people's minds. The economic impact of the shutdown has obviously been catastrophic. I don't think there's going to be a quick uh, recovery from that, despite the fact that the stock market is incongruously uh, booming, really, or bouncing back very strongly in the middle of all of this. So, look, I think that the the combination of the death toll from COVID-19 and the economic impact of uh, the shutdown, both are uh, obviously very, very serious in and of themselves. And also, I agree with Lauren, are, are bound to have some kind of adverse impact upon Donald Trump's chances of being reelected. Uh, Hunter, it seems that the White House's response uh, this week has been just to ignore the coronavirus. Uh, like, if we, pre- if we don't talk about it, it's not there, right? Pretend it's all over. I mean, I think that's been a lot of people's response, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, yeah true. Yeah. I, I, I was on quarantine lockdown here in my house. I, I've been out here covering these protests. I feel a duty um, to sort of rush out there for work. Um, I've been talking to a lot of these protesters, and I've said, are you worried about this? I mean, these people are packed shoulder to shoulder. You mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's against every protocol we had just a week and change ago. Um, and that's why I was saying before, you know, we keep saying the before times. Initially, that was referring to pre-corona. Now that's referring to just a week ago when we were only in corona. Um, one thing I think Niall was alluding to, the protesters are definitely, I, I've seen almost, it's hard to speak that way on such large groups, but heavy mask wearing. One thing I have not seen is heavy mask wearing among the law enforcement. And there's a there's a slew of agencies here in D.C. responding from National Guard troops, Secret Service, U.S. Park Police, ATF, DEA, the whole alphabet soup is out on the streets. And by and large, they're not wearing masks, including D.C. Uh, Metropolitan Police. And experts are worried about a second surge from these protests. I'm personally wondering, and again, I've only seen D.C. extensively, but I'm wondering if here that surge is going to disproportionately affect first responders, which which leads to a lot of scary potential outcomes. And I think adds to what Lauren was saying, where, you know, Joe Biden has hardly run a great campaign, but in a world where there's 100,000 plus dead, there's civil unrest in the streets, record unemployment, you know, I, I'm waiting to see more of the first numbers that come out from this stuff, but particularly if there is another spike in corona, as experts fear, it's just hard to see a president holding on through any of that. 
Okay, uh, Lauren Burke and Niall Standish and Hunter Walker. Excellent conversation, excellent overview of the, uh, uh, even though we just had to kind of skirt across the surface of a lot of things of what's going on this week. We thank you and thank you for your time. And, but we won't let you go uh, without your sharing with us something that caught your attention this week. We call it your favorite story of the week. Uh, Niall, what, what stopped you in your tracks? It's something that is related to much of what we've been talking about, and that's the international uh, protests about George Floyd's death. I know oh, it's yeah. a very serious topic to choose as as favourite story seems perhaps peculiar, <laughs> but 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 the fact that protests have spread so widely, uh, Britain, Germany, my native Ireland, across Europe, that is, I think, significant. I, we don't necessarily want to overestimate the effect of sort of winds of change of that nature does it does it bother donald trump i don't know does it lead to concrete change in american law enforcement i'm not sure that a demonstration in germany does that but i do think that those protests speak to a a genuine sense of outrage and b a belief that the united states should be better than it is in these moments and i think that that is therefore a hopeful story yeah, it was very significant uh, worldwide, uh, seeing people uh, out in peaceful protest, uh, sort of in solidarity with Americans who are out in the streets as well. Lauren, um, your your favorite story? Well, uh, something that uh, caught my eye was that the, um, the family of George Floyd, like most families who are in this situation, uh, threw up a GoFundMe. I think it was on the third day after George Floyd died, so it was the Wednesday after. And I had just been peeking at it every now and then, and I see that it went from one million to two million to three million. And if you look at it, you know, GoFundMe has that little ticker that tells you, you know, every one minute or so somebody's mm-hmm. donating twenty five bucks. Well, this thing is now at twelve million four hundred thousand dollars, which I, I would imagine wow. is wow. the biggest GoFundMe or one of the biggest GoFundMe's. It's an unthinkable twelve million dollars. Uh, and, you know, the diversity of the crowds that we've seen this week, I think, mm-hmm. is reflected in a lot of the surnames I see of the donors. It's just a, an amazing thing. And uh, that that's my that's the thing that caught my eye this week. And you couple that with uh, what former President Barack Obama said yesterday about how encouraged he was by, as you point out, the diversity of the crowds that are out right. protesting, that this is something different and this is something uh, we can all be proud of. Uh, and Hunter, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I've got a favorite story, Bill. My favorite story is uh, a fact check published by the Associated Press. Uh, and it's it, it basically outlined in a very technical and detailed way with all of the evidence how there is no question that the protesters in Lafayette Park who were cleared out ahead of Trump's appearance on Monday were tear gassed. And again, You've had the U.S. Park Police yep. basically issue a statement saying it wasn't tear gas, it was smoke canisters. So essentially, you know, it wasn't tear gas, it was just gas that causes tears. And, and, <laughs> and you know, basically you've seen these conservatives. I mean, Laura Ingram, you know, said, said it wasn't tear gas. The Trump campaign, um, you know, demanded fact checks from outlets. The New York Times caved 
Even Fox News is saying it's tear gas, but the New York Times caved and was calling it, quote, some form of chemical spray. And you saw this like allegation from conservatives that, you know, it had to be a certain brand of tear gas. If it's not Acme, it's not tear gas. And the AP just broke all the way through that. Uh, One thing I think people are alluding to is the idea it was, you know, sort of smoke bombs just to disperse people. Those are usually white. They don't Mm -hmm. have an irritant. Uh, I'm very passionate about this because I, I try to be a fully objective guy, but, but, you know, there's a line when you are denying objective reality, that is Orwellian, that is authoritarian, that is don't believe your lying eyes, really creepy stuff. And I was standing there, I was tear gassed, my eyes burned, like they almost never have before in almost a decade of covering protests. There was white smoke, there was yellow smoke, it was pouring from canisters, it was tear gas, and the AP has really come through on that front. Good for the AP. Good for you, Hunter, for uh, putting putting yourself on the line down there. Okay, now my favorite story. I know um, we're not supposed to speak ill of others, uh, and we're not supposed to rejoice when uh, things don't go well with others. But I must say, my favorite story of the week, and this gets back to we were talking about a little earlier, the need to really address the question of systemic racism in this country uh, in a very serious way. Well, uh, I think we had a good start this week on Tuesday when Steve King was defeated in Iowa for in his attempt for re-election. He lost the primary. Uh, and in terms of, re- remember, Steve King is a guy as recently as last year, last year, 2019, in an interview with the New York Times, among many racist statements he's made over the years, and last year he told the New York Times, quote, white nationalist white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? (laughs) Uh, So I think the defeat of Steve King is a good start in dealing with getting rid of systemic racism uh, in this country. Uh, He will not be missed. Uh, And with that, we thank uh, the members of our panel. Uh, So Hunter, where can people follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Hunter W. And of course, uh, Yahoo News, yahoo.com. Okay, how about you, Niall? Niall Stanage on Twitter and obviously via The Hill and its website. Okay, and Lauren Burke, people want to keep up with you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at LV Burke, so L-V-B-U-R-K-E. And uh, the Black, Black Press USA, if you just type in nnpa.org, it'll come up okay. on Google. You got it. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Niall. And thank you, all of you, for listening today. Uh, We really, really appreciate your being with us. Uh, And we ask you again one more time, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by going to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. And then tell your friends how much you like it and ask them to do the very, very same. Also encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. And the only other thing we ask you is to stay safe, stay strong, wear your mask, practice social distancing. It's not over yet. And uh, with that, we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.